Many of you have probably seen the movie Forrest Gump, I assume. Uh, it's one of the top 15 most watched movies of all times. And believe it or not, even though I remember when it came out, next year it's turning 20 years old. Can you, can you imagine that? Forrest Gump came out 20 years ago, and it's a, it's a pretty unique film. And I think that's why it's captured many people's attention. It's been watched and re-watched re over and over again. There's many unique aspects to the film, but one of the most memorable sort of central themes in the film that I think grabs people's attention is the persevering spirit of Forrest Gump, in particular for running. You recall that he was bullied a lot <clears throat> as a child, and so he learned to run. And run he did. He ran to school. As an adult, he ran back and forth across the, the battlefields of Vietnam. And then he did his famous three and a quarter year run back and forth, back and forth across the United States. And when he was asked why, he just said for no particular reason. He absolutely loved to run. And I think one of the reasons why this film is a fascinating film and a memorable film is because his character, in many respects, personifies us. His character personifies a man who had an unstoppable spirit, who otherwise had very little going for him. Now, I suspect that most of us probably don't actually want to be quite like Forrest. We don't necessarily envy his circumstances, but I suspect that all of us would like to be maybe a little more persevering. Would you agree with me on that? A little more unstoppable in our lives. Because while our life isn't necessarily a direct reflection of Forrest Gump's, nevertheless, life is difficult. And most of us know right well that we're just average people with unique hurdles and challenges trying to honor the king that we serve the Lord Jesus and trying to live our lives well. You know, the word of God says something about running. Running is an analogy for perseverance. Running is an analogy for unstoppable faith. You may recall Hebrews chapter 12, where we are called to run, but we are not called to run for no particular reason. We are called to run for a reason. We are called to be on mission with Christ. There the word of God says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In the providential plan of God, there's a race that's set before us. We don't run haphazardly for no particular reason. We run for a reason. And here's the focus of our running, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So there we're reminded that we run ultimately for the glory of God, for the honor of our King. But all of us can easily be sidetracked. We can easily be stopped. We can easily, easily, easily be knocked down. So what is the key to <clears throat> persevering faith, to unstoppable faith, to enduring faith, to faith that keeps going and going and going and going, no matter what the obstacles that may be put in front of us are. Some of you have experienced some obstacles in 2023, and you may be hoping that that's the last of them. 
but chances are there'll be some more in 2024. So how do we persevere, especially in a world that is increasingly anti-Christ, that makes it difficult, that doesn't help us to fan the flame of faith, but stands in our way and puts hurdles and barriers and walls in our way? Well, in the incarnation narratives of Scripture, we meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ, as has already been said today, is the Son of God, come in human flesh, born of a virgin, in order to ultimately save us from our sins. But in the birth narratives, we also meet several everyday people. Everyday people, average people with their own unique challenges and struggles who are participating in some form of worship or paying some sort of homage to Christ. And from their example, we learn that we are called to worship. Even for average people, even if we come from obscure backgrounds, we are called to worship. Normally, when we mention the figures surrounding the birth narratives, we may focus on Mary, for example. And she's a wonderful woman who is depicted as a key figure in Jesus' birth, obviously. Or we may focus a bit of our attention on Joseph or the the wise men or the shepherds. But this Christmas, I would like to draw your attention to an even lesser studied character in the word of God, a person of very low social status who had her fair share of obstacles. And yet a person that personifies focus, unstoppable faith, incessant worship, a person that understood what it means to run the race that is set before her, to stay focused, not to lose faith. And from this person, we learn an important lesson. And the lesson is, is that unstoppable faith and hope are possible when our lives are centered on worship. It's so easy to make worship a Sunday experience, but not necessarily a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday experience. It's so easy to make worship a peripheral aspect of our faith, a footnote to our faith, but actually it's our fundamental calling. It's our fundamental calling to be worshipers. No excuses, no matter what our status is, no matter what obstacles may have been put in our path, no matter what challenges we may have experienced in our personal stories, we are called to a life of worship. And when we worship, life is meaningful and it's worthwhile. It's interesting that her life is only recorded for us in the word of God in three short verses. That's all she gets. Just three verses. Three verses are dedicated to describing her in Luke's incarnation account, but they are both encouraging and refreshing. And frankly, I would say even kind of amazing. She's not quite as low on the social ladder as Forrest Gump might have been in the movie, but she's pretty close. And I want you to note the details as they are recorded in Luke chapter two, verses 36, 37, and 38. The word of God says, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, 
she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Here's the first lesson we learned from Anna's life, that we have a savior that is worth worshiping. That we have a savior that is worth dedicating our lives to. That we have a savior that is worth our worship night and day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade without retirement. That we have a savior that is worth worshiping. Now in the broader incarnation event, there are several repeated characteristics that we see in the people that we encounter. Many people are mentioned. The wise men, the shepherds, the angels are present. Mary and Joseph are obviously present. Jesus is taken to the temple. We meet Simeon. We meet Anna. The Pharisees have something to say about it. Herod's involved in the event trying to destroy the baby Jesus in the cradle. But one of the overarching themes that we see in the gospels as it pertains to the life of Jesus is humility, humble people, people of lowly status, worshiping the King outsiders, people of low, low social status. It's interesting, tend to see things, notice things, observe things about Jesus and in his incarnation that the religious elite seem completely clueless to. Did you notice that when you've read the gospel narratives? Wise men from the East, non-Jews, Gentiles, not part of God's old covenant. See things that the religious elite of Israel seem clueless to. Shepherds, men of low social status, see things in Christ that Herod the king does not see, who's also a Jew, by the way, and should have known better. We have wise men from the East. We have shepherds in the field nearby. And now we have, of all things, a widow. And in ancient times, widows were pretty low social status. This is why when the prophets would call people to engage in justice, they would always identify what? Orphans and widows. Because that's about as low as it got on the social totem pole. She's a widow, not a king, not an elected member of parliament, not a person with a great job, a widow. Herod, the Pharisees, they're blind to it all. They're trying to impede Christ's ministry. And there's a lesson there for each of us that humility is required to truly appreciate the Christmas event. Humility is required in each of our lives to truly appreciate what is going on in the Christmas narrative. The second thing, theme that's repeated throughout the narratives is this idea of prophecy. Now the Eastern Orthodox Church considers Anna and Simeon, who's also mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, as the last of the Old Testament prophets, bringing to an end a series of Old Testament prophets. But I would suggest that they are better understood as a foreshadowing of several prophetic figures that would arise ushering in the New Testament era. Because prior to them, Israel had gone through about a 400-year period of silence called the intertestamental period, where very few, if any, known prophets were on the scene. Written prophets, they weren't on the scene. They weren't writing biblical books. Oral prophets, they weren't really on the scene. There'd been a 400-year period of prophetic lull. But here we start off in the Gospels by observing a series of prophetic people that step into the pages of history. 
And they all have a specific reason for that. One of the first people we encounter is Zechariah. Zechariah is mentioned in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. The Bible says Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And then in Luke chapter 2, verses 33 to 35, we have Simeon, who's also prophesying as follows. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. He prophesies that Jesus Christ will divide. Jesus Christ will expose. Jesus Christ will reveal the inner workings of the human heart. And as you read through the rest of the Gospels, he indeed did just that. So we have Zechariah prophesying in the first chapter. We have Simeon prophesying in the second chapter. And then in the second chapter, we're introduced to Anna, who's also called a prophetess. Now the word prophet, you can kind of hear this even in English. Pro means for. If you're pro-life, you're for life. Pro means for, and the remaining part of the word prophecy means tell. So to be a prophet is to pro-tell, or maybe a simpler way of putting it in English is to foretell. To see things and tell things in advance. People with prophetic gifts are those that see around the curve in the road, if you will, that tend to get it a little bit sooner than the masses get it. They tend to see things that people who are otherwise asleep at the wheel may not see. And Zechariah, Simeon, and Anna are those kind of people. They see things before Herod saw things, before the Pharisees saw things, before the masses saw things, each of these people were prophets in the most basic sense of the word. They said things about Jesus before anyone else did. They saw things in Jesus before anyone else did. Now this would continue, of course, through the work of the prophetic ministry of the early apostles of the church, who would call God's people to covenant faithfulness, who would warn God's people of some of the unique challenges that God had in store for them, who would see around the curve in the road to call God's people through their words and actions to faithfulness and preparedness. Now, her prophecies aren't written out for us extensively in the, in the word of God. Rather, there's just a very simple summary of her prophecies that are written as follows in the word of God. It says, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem had experienced all sorts of challenges. They had rebelled against God. They had gone through cycles of obedience and disobedience, obedience and disobedience time and time again. And the Old Testament prophets prophesied that one would come called the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ, the Christos, who would redeem his people from their sins. And many prophetic figures throughout history have stepped on the, the scene and claimed to be messianic in nature, who have claimed to have some sort of power from God. But she understood, even from Jesus' earlier days, that he was God's long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one that would come to save the world. So her life was prophetic in nature. 
She saw around the curve. She got it. She was centered. She was focused. She understood her purpose. She understood God's plans. She was keenly aware of the spiritual realities of her world and saw Jesus for who he was. And you should expect that if you're a person that's incessantly engaged in worship and praying and fasting. Would you not? If you're constantly praying to the Lord and fasting and worshiping, you're going to be more aware of the spiritual realities that are taking place in the world around you. If you're not aware of the spiritual realities taking place in the world, world around you, chances are it's because you're not worshiping enough, you're not praying enough, and you're not controlling your body through fasting enough. You're focused on the material world. But Anna wasn't such a person. Her life was tuned in. Remember in the old days when we had radios where you sort of had to turn the dial one way or another to try to get, get the channel? Or maybe if you're really, really old like me, you remember bunny ears on the television where you'd have to like adjust them back and forth just to, to get the channel, right? My mother was telling me that when she was a kid, in order to get the channels on the television to tune in, she'd have to open the window and her dad would go out and he would climb the television antenna, the, te the television tower, and he would adjust the antenna manually back and forth and she'd shout out, to the, out the window, a little to the right, a little to the left, and finally you'd get your channel right. How spoiled are we, by the way? <laughs> right? But you gotta tune in. And in the same way, one of the ways we tune into God, one of the ways we get clarity of mind, clarity of mission, clarity of life purpose is through prayer, worship, and fasting. So if you want to hike up your spiritual clarity, dedicate yourselves to the things that Anna dedicated herself to. Now, prophets, when they come, they also come for a reason, because when God starts to raise up more prophets. He generally does so during times of judgment or revival. Times of judgment or revival. God often had sent prophetic figures to warn and encourage his people to get back to faithful living when they had strayed. The prophet Joel had predicted hundreds of years earlier that when the Messiah would come, there would be an increase of men and women that would come onto the scene and prophesy of the coming of the Holy Spirit to to help people to see what they had lost sight of. Joel writes in Joel 2, 28 to 29, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Notice a breakdown of class structure. God pouring out his spirit on all people. And these prophecies are in part fulfilled in the life of Christ and in the subsequent event that we know as Pentecost, where God did indeed pour out his spirit and people of all classes, all social statuses would come to faith in Christ. With the incarnation of Christ, brothers and sisters, God was fulfilling his prophetic words and would call people to repent and to submit to his messianic rule over their lives. Jew and Gentile would have opportunity to repent. Old men and young men, men and women, people of high social class and low social class. God was about to do something significant through his chosen Messiah. God had come in the flesh. He'd fulfill the law of God. 
he'd die and he'd be resurrected. And we worship him for all of these things. So in Christmas, just reminding us here of something most of us already know, but perhaps lose sight of, we have a savior that is worth our worship night and day, night and day, night and day without ceasing and without end. But then there's a very human element to this birth narrative. We also find a life worth emulating. We have a savior that's worth worshiping and we have a life, an example, a role model worth emulating. There's an everyday message for us, a pattern to follow instruction on a life well lived. I want to focus our attention back on Anna and some of the details that Luke gives us about her that all serve to help us to see her lowly status, but her absolute focus on the things that really matter in life. So a few things I want to draw out of the text that you probably have already seen. Let's just give ourselves a bit more time to digest this stuff mentally. So the first thing is, is that Anna was a woman. You might think, big deal. Yeah, but that's because you're a Westerner. That's because you live in an egalitarian culture. But when you rewind the clock 2,000 years, things were different for women than they were for men. With the notable exception of Mary, most people featured in the incarnation are men. Most people featured in the word of God are men. There's far more men mentioned in the word of God than there are women. And that's because of the cultural reality of their day. Men were more prominent. Women were considered of lesser social status. If you saw someone in the word of God, if you're writing the narrative and you wanted to portray someone that was like a super worshiper, a super prayer, a super faster, and you wanted to use them as the archetype believer, logically you would pick a man. But here God introduces us to a woman who though was those, though she had a less prominent role because of her sex, Nevertheless, is one of the few women mentioned in the birth narratives because of her absolute passion for what really matters in life. And she's a woman, therefore, that should be an encouragement to women that you too have equal access to God and godliness. And frankly, she's also a great example to men, a motherly figure, a woman of great faith and contentment in the things of God. Secondly, Anna was from the tribe of Asher. Now, this is the only reference in the New Testament, aside from the list of nations in Revelation, where any individual is mentioned as being from the tribe of Asher. If you know biblical history, it's actually fascinating that she's from the tribe of Asher. Because in 722 BC, we know, that the Assyrians came in and they grabbed hold of the 10 Northern tribes. Israel had been broken into two nations because of the foolishness of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, several years earlier. The Assyrians come in and they capture and deport all 10 of the Northern tribes into Assyria. And there is never even up to 2023, a point in history where en masse they've returned to Israel. Never. This is why they're often called the lost tribes of Israel. And then in the south, of course, in 586, we have Benjamin remaining and Judah remaining and the Babylonians come in and they deport them. But the difference between the northern deportation and the southern deportation is that the southern one only lasted for 70 years. 
They were taken to Babylon for 70 years and then under Ezra and Nehemiah were brought back. So in Jesus' day, 99.9999% of the individuals we would call Jews were from the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Benjamin. Because Asher was one of the 10 northern tribes that had been taken away. And while they did not come back in mass, obviously at some point in time, unrecorded for us in the word of God, individuals from some of those 10 northern tribes must have been released or escaped. And they had returned to Israel, but from there forward, they would always be considered a minority. To be of the tribe of Asher would be like a minority among the majority. You were one of the tribes in the north that were taken away. So the social stigma of being of the tribe of Asher would have been significant. And yet the reason why her tribal origins, I believe, are mentioned in this gospel narrative is that she foreshadows the reunification of all tribes, all people groups, despite their historical divisions, despite their obscure lineage, she foreshadows God's pending plan to bring all tribes, all nations into submission under the Lordship of Jesus Christ which is articulated further in the Great Commission and which you are proof of. Because here we have a room full of people filled from all different tribes and nations and cultural backgrounds who have surrendered themselves to the Lord and now play a role in the kingdom of God. So maybe when you consider your own social class, your own social background, you think, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not really all that significant of a person. I'm an immigrant I'm a first-generation Canadian, or I'm a refugee in Canada, or I come from a long line of nobodies. Well, it doesn't matter in the plans and purposes of God. Even those of obscure lineage can play a significant role in the kingdom of God if they stay focused on what really matters. And what really matters? Worship, the worship of the king. The third thing that we're told about Anna is that she had suffered great loss many, many decades earlier. Now in Israel, a little bit different in the West, uh, but in, in ancient Israel, girls would marry generally between the age of 15 and 20. Men would marry around the age of 30. The age of women marrying was obviously a lot younger than it is in the Western world today, I, was actually, I actually looked this up this week. Believe it or not, the average age of men now getting married in Canada is a little over 30 years of age. And in the U.S., it's over 35 years of age. So marriage has been delayed a lot further in Western culture than it used to be. But in the first century, girls would typically get married between the age of 15 and 20. So let's put her you know, around 18 years of age for the average She'd been married. After seven years of marriage, we're told, her husband and protector died. So she's still a relatively young woman, maybe 25 years of age. By biblical law, she was permitted to remarry. But instead of remarrying, she dedicates herself to the service of God, which, by the way, highlights, doesn't it, the significance and devotion and value of widows and single adults in the kingdom of God. You don't have to be married to be useful to the purposes of God. 
But what I think is really interesting about her life is that even though she'd experienced this cataclysmic loss as a very young woman, you can imagine the disappointment, the challenges of losing your spouse so young. She did not abandon God, but rather she leaned in even more diligently to the service of God. We all must be reminded to be careful not to allow grief to drive us away from God, but rather toward God. Did you hear me, Did you hear me say that? Grief should not drive us away from God, but toward God. When grief drives us away from God, the flesh wins, the devil wins, the world wins. But when grief drives us toward God, we are blessed. And sometimes God takes things away from us in this life, things that we love and appreciate in order to better position us for worship. Anna was also elderly. Now the Greek here is a little bit ambiguous in terms of what her actual age was. The literal word for word translation of the Greek reads as follows. And she was a widow of about years 84. So there's two ways of interpreting this. She was either 84 years old or she'd been a widow for 84 years. So she was either 84 or she was something like a hundred years of age. But either way, she was an elderly woman. And yet she never retired from ministry or worship. She never retired from ministry or worship. Now, there's a temptation as we perhaps get older to say, well, let, let the younger people do it. There's, there's no place for me in the Christian church. There's no value to me in the kingdom of God. Well, obviously you, you maybe function a little differently at 84 than you do at 24. But we're never called to retire from worship and we're never called to retire from ministry, ever. For the entire duration of our lives, whether we are active and young and vibrant and healthy or laying in a hospice bed, we are called to a life of worship and ministry for the King of Kings. No matter our age, no matter our circumstances in life, no matter what difficulty we've experienced, we are called to worship him. And I hope that this is a mindset that you have that you want to dedicate your entire life to the worship of God. So this is a woman clearly of low social position because of her gender, because of her tribe, because of her, the pain she'd experienced in life, because of her age. And yet you'll notice two wonderful things about her. Her life was centered on worship. The Bible says that she worshiped daily in the temple. Why would she go to the temple when she knew that God was everywhere? because she wanted to be public in her witness and ministry. You, you know this, you don't have to go to church to be a worshiper. But when we gather as God's people, not only do we bless one another, and we're commanded to gather by the way, not only do we bless one another, but there's a public declaration of our priorities. You don't think the world notices when hundreds of cars drive down this road and collect in a parking lot? You don't think that communicates something to the world around us? It does. It communicates our priorities. It communicates the public nature of our faith. We too are called to be daily worshipers. And of course, we're called to gather one and seven for, for corporate worship. It's a command that we're not to forsake. Worship is part of our testimony. Which is the final point I want to emphasize about her life. Her life was centered on worship, but it wasn't just her and Jesus in a prayer closet. 
Anna's life was marked by public testimony. People knew where she stood. They knew her beliefs. They knew what she was all about. I suspect that maybe 90% of you in this room are, are Christians. To the rest of you, welcome. We hope that you're listening and paying attention to what we're all about. But perhaps 90% of you or more are, are Christians, but the question is, is your Christianity public or private? There's a great temptation to privatize our faith in the West. To sort of put it into practice on Sundays, but maybe not so much on Mondays. But this woman was public about her faith every single day of the week. The Bible says she gave thanks to God. She began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. She was talking about God, Christ, the Messiah all the time. Are you? Are you public in your faith? As a public place of worship, she testified to God's goodness in all of her life. Sometimes, by the way, the best places to do evangelism are in public houses of worship. Because not everybody that comes into a public house of worship gets it. So why, why would she be in the temple testifying to God? Because unbelievers show up for worship all the time. So she was a woman that picked the cultural religious center of her, her city. And she was there day in, day out. Again, we're not talking about for six-month short-term mission trips. She was there for decades testifying and dedicating herself to the word of God. And here she is inserted within the word of God as an example for all of time. Who would have thought? I bet she never thought that. That, that someone would be talking about her in a Christian church 2,000 years later and calling God's people to emulate her life. Brothers and sisters, it's a wonderful time of year for us to refocus. We should be worshiping the Christ child every single day. But this is a wonderful time of the year to refocus on the worship of our King and our Lord and to take stock of our lives. And I know many of you are thinking maybe about even some New Year's resolutions coming around the corner. What a great time of the year to refocus and recalibrate and say, you know what? I want some Anna in my life. I want to be the kind of person that is focusing my life and my attention on the worship of the king even more in 2024 than I did in 2023. And I want to set aside any excuses that may stand in the way. Any thought, well, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm, I'm too old. I'm not old enough. I'm not the right gender. To set aside all those excuses and to find the place that God has for you and to serve him all the days of your life. Every believer is called to be a worshiper. And when we worship, we can be marked by unstoppable faith and hope as we center our lives on the perpetual ongoing worship of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in this respect, may every day be a Christmas day for you until the Lord takes you home. 